Somewhere along your YouTube journey, you're going to encounter this concept called a brand deal. This is when you and a brand work together in some sort of way, whether it's a free product or whether it's involved in some sort of a campaign and they give you a whole bunch of money. Now, we all want those brand deals because this allows us to transition into a full-time career on YouTube. But how do you go about getting those brand deals? How do the brands actually find the influencers that they want to work with? What actually happens behind the scenes once you reach out to your brand? All these questions will be answered on today's episode of Tube Talk. Welcome to Tube Talk, the show dedicated to helping you become a better video creator so you can get more views, subscribers, and build your audience. Brought to you by vidIQ. Download for free at vidIQ.com. And welcome to another episode of Tube Talk. My name is Liron Segev. I am your host. I'm a tech blogger, a YouTuber, and the director of customer success here at vidIQ, where every day I help creators understand their channels, understand strategy, get more subscribers, more views in less time. So why do we do it? Why do we need those subscribers? Why do we need those views? Well, for most of us, it's all about going full time on YouTube. It's about getting paid. And guess what? You get paid when you're a match for a brand who actually wants to pay you. They actually want to work with you. Now, many of us make terrible mistakes when reaching out to brands or we wait patiently for brands to reach out to us. And then there's the right way to do it. And then, of course, there's the wrong way to do it. <sighs> it gets very confusing very quickly. So how do we unscramble this egg? How do we make this simple for all of us to get? So what we need is an industry insider willing to spill the beans, willing to give us an inside look at what happens behind the scene. And luckily, we have Kamal Parikh today, who is the VP of Integrated Media at Weber Shandwick, which is a global public relations firm. She deals with brands and influencers and has lots of tips and tricks to share with us. Kamal, thank you for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me, Liron. So um, I've been in a social media marketer for 10 years, and I've had the opportunity to work across a number of industries, ranging from entertainment to consumer packaged goods, hospitality, even gaming and retail. And along the way, I've picked up a lot of tricks and tools, um, not just with regards to platform strategy, but also influencer strategy, which has become really hot and heavy, um, particularly in the last decade. So currently, I'm based in Dallas, Texas, and I'm I'm the VP of Integrated Media at Weber Shandwick, which if you haven't heard of it before, it's a global communications firm that has a network that spans 80 countries, so it's global. And its roots are in public relations, but today it's an integrated firm with really deep expertise in digital marketing and emerging technology. Okay, so if anybody knows a thing or two about dealing with us people on this side of the equation, it's got to be you. <laughs> so, <laughs> This is why I'm excited. This is one of my favorite topics. I think that there's so many misconceptions that are out there. And today we're going to kill a lot of those myths and we're just going to dive in and understand. But I think we've got to take a step back. So how do you see the evolution of marketing? Has things changed? Yeah. So I think there's been a really big shift. Um, and it, not recent. Like over time throughout my career, I've seen a shift where the power that brands used to hold is starting to shift and consumers really hold the power. They've got... Um, access to the internet and 
you know, all sorts of social media platforms in their back pocket. And so as brands continue to stay relevant and look to be top of mind to consumers, they're realizing that their tactics need to evolve with these changing trends. And marketing itself, if you break it down into its fundamentals, it's ultimately about engaging with consumers where they naturally gravitate. And so as people start to shift where they're spending their time, marketers are starting to pick up on that. And that's where consumers are now spending more time on social media and brands are trying to figure out how to, you know, how to cater to consumers in social media. And there's always this tug of war between consumers and brands. Consumers don't necessarily want to be marketed to and marketers really want consumers to buy. And so I think where we've kind of netted out is more of an authentic relationship where brands are trying to give consumers what they need when they need it um, and make it easy for them to make purchasing decisions or decisions on what type of services to use. And so it's about developing a relationship rather than just kind of speaking at somebody. That's a big shift. In the past, it was more of, I'm going to take a half page ad in a newspaper or a billboard Mm -hmm. on the side of the road. There was no measurement. There was none of those metrics and you kind of spray and pray. Kind of hopefully the right person drives past, looks up and thinks to themselves, hey, I need that product or hey, I need that service. But all of that has shifted. And as you rightly said, people don't consume media like they used to in the past anyway. We we don't watch TV at seven o'clock. There's a famous saying that, um, I think it's the head of Wired magazine, if I recall correctly. He said that my son watches primetime TV, just not at primetime and not on TV. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's how much we've changed, right? I'm watching Game of Thrones, but I'm watching it probably an hour after it aired just because of, you know, busy lifestyles. And we can do that now. And I think the great thing about marketers is, um, and marketing is that it's ever evolving and changing. It keeps it so interesting. What I was doing 10 years ago is not what I'm doing now. And it's really interesting about how we can even measure, accurately measure and show ROI to, for, you know, our executives or even our clients. Um, It's come a really long way. And marketing has become both it's always been an art, but now it's also become a science. So now if I'm kind of thinking from with a brand's hat on, so I'm a brand and I come to you and I say, look, I really have got this product or the service that I want to get out there. I want to do this influencer marketing. What do brands look for when they're developing mm-hmm. those campaigns? Yeah. So in a nutshell, it depends, which I know <laughs> is never the, um, the answer people are looking for, but it truly depends just because each campaign is so different and the needs of each industry vary. So while influencer marketing is the most common I've seen in like CPG, fashion, retail sectors, there are a lot of industries ranging from banking to um, even business B2B companies who are looking to leverage the power of influence. And a lot of them may not know how to do that um, because influencer marketing is starting to evolve. It's about, it's not just about paying customers anymore. So it's about those relationship buildings. So in my mind, the way I think about it is in broad strokes. And I've narrowed it down to three things that I kind of tell my clients, Mm -hmm. which is the first is authentic relationships. And it's about building those authentic relationships between influencers and their communities. And you'll probably hear me say this over and over again, (laughs) but I think it's it's so vital. It is necessary to kind of say it over and over again, because I feel like a consumer these days um, can smell an ad a mile away. Like they know what they're being targeted towards and they've really developed that prowess to 
to be able to see right through it. So it comes down to a brand being able to communicate to a consumer in the way they need to. Um, and it comes down to authenticity. So while at one point in the influencer marketing spectrum, brands were looking for ROI in these macro influencers. They were reaching out to people who had these so huge social followings. Now they, those may not be those authentic relationships. It's not right. about, like you, to your point earlier, it's not about just broadcasting your message, but it's finding those in the term like we use as nano or micro influencers to really tap into those follower or individuals that have followings that may even be in the hundreds, maybe in the thousands, which are so much more smaller, but they reach out to their niche communities. And the reason right. they're small is because they're having that one-on-one -on -one relationship with their with their audience. And that's what's so important to brands is if they're going to spend influencer dollars to connect with an influencer and really be able to have them market on behalf of the brand, they want to make sure that they're reaching the right person. Um, and so that targeted approach really lends itself well to building those authentic relationships. Right. In fact, um, there's, I mean, there's so many statistics out there, but one that really caught my attention is that today, 70% of teens trust influencers more than traditional celebrities, which is very different from how I grew up. I was, I mean, we looked at the pop stars and people we saw in media to really define um, trends. And now people are looking on YouTube and they're looking at Instagram and they're finding these social influencers to follow and um, to kind of figure out behavior patterns. So I think that's a really interesting insight for brands. That, that, make, that makes sense. I mean, I remember um, you watched those ads on TV because there was no other choice. And, you know, mm -hmm. you bought the shampoo that um, Jennifer Anderson was, was kind of promoting and was like Dove soap because this person was doing it and was the coffee machine because he was doing that. It, but today the celebrities are going to be people that you wouldn't recognize if you're not of this, of, you know, following that culture or following these people. Mm -hmm. And they're the ones when they say, hey, I really like this product. You guys should try it out. There's going to be a huge community. Well, who's at least going to give it a shot? It comes down to trust, I think. And that's what authenticity is kind of mm -hmm. built upon. And so our, who we trust is, is starting to shift too and has shifted for a very long time. We trust people that are our families and our friends and people who are trusted advisors. Right. And so that's why it's influencer marketing is really starting to become hyper-local where it's about the communities and where kind of what that relationship looks like. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are influencers without even knowing they're influencers, which is um, like each of us can be influential to people in our community. Sure. And so one of the things that a lot of brands are tapping into, especially when it comes to B2B influencer marketing, um, is employee advocacy, which is using your own workforce and the thought leaders within your organization who are proud to work for that organization and proud to of the products and services they create, having them share with their communities about the brand and right. sharing content. And so that's coming from a highly trusted source. All right, that was point number one. You've got to find mm -hmm. so me as the brand, I'm looking for an influencer and you mentioned micro and nano influencers as well. So don't always think you've got to have those hundreds and thousands of millions of subscribers before you qualify. Do you guys define a micro or nano influencer based on a certain 
number or is it more of a gut feel right. project? Again, it depends, <laughs> um, but it just depends on the industry. So for, if right. you're like in the insurance in- industry, your numbers are going to look different about who your micro and nano influencers are. They may be in the thousands. Now, if you go into more CPG or retail where you have, you know, a really large um, population, then it may become like a nano influencer, maybe a hundred thousand. So it's really right. relative to the industry gotcha. um, and who you're trying to target. I suppose that makes sense. So a community of left-handed fishermen is going to be maybe like a hundred, <laughs> but each one of them is so committed. Those are great to tap into um, mm-hmm. versus someone who's in the consumer goods who maybe it's millions because there's just so many to choose from as well. Okay. Right. So that, that makes sense. I'm finding my right influencer me as the brand, right, what's point number two? You said there's three points. Point number two, yes. Yes. So point number two is brands are wanting to spend their dollars and spend their time with people that are already maybe avid fans of that product or service. And I used to work at Fossil Group, and this was something that we really leaned in towards. People who naturally already were posting user-generated content on their social pages um, who are huge fans of the product. They weren't looking for compensation at that point. They were just Mm -hmm. loved the brand so much and they would post about it. And there doesn't, I mean, there isn't anything more authentic than someone who naturally loves a brand, um, a product or service. And so marketers will lean into that or to work with them. And that's really great because it could be a really great symbiotic relationship. They're already naturally love the product. Now there right. could be seeded free product. Uh, down the road, it could even become a contractual relationship where they're getting paid to talk about the brand. And their community already knows that if they put sponsored behind something, it's not because they're getting just paid to do it, but they already really enjoyed that product or service. And that like just goes such a long way. Wow. Okay. So how do you guys actually monitor those avid fans? How do you find them? So, I mean, social listening has come a really long way and social monitoring. There's, I mean, it's so many tools out there. <laughs> um, a few like Sprinkler I've used in the past. And um, there's a number of tools out there where it really helps brands listen to certain keywords or people that mention uh-huh. um, or use a specific hashtag. So if they're using the branded hashtag frequently or if they mention them in their copy, uh, brands will be able to pick up on it. And so we, at Fossil Group, we used to do a seeding program where we would seed product to our most avid fans. And it was a great two-way relationship because brands got really great content and the consumer who loves a brand gets really great product. And so it's kind of a win-win. Wow. Okay. So those, those are two golden nuggets right there as well. It's you, um, you looked for keywords and then you also looked for using the hashtag. Do you think you go through like stages? In other words, um, I'm in the tech sector, so I love a certain product, and then I will tweet about it. I will do Instagram post about it. I will do a YouTube video about that. Do I go through like being monitored? Do I go through a phases? Like I'm on level A. In other words, okay, we're going to keep an eye on this person. Level B, or maybe we want to kind of send them some product. Level C, okay, maybe we need to kind of get them more contractually involved and let's do something more formal. Is that yep. kind of a process? Yeah, that I mean, you hit it spot on. So there's kind of like the base level with influencers. Um, and every, a lot of brands, especially brands that are advanced in the influencer space, will have a very tiered approach. So at the bottom rung, you've got your se- product seeding, which is where you're gifting free product to influencers so that you're getting that win-win relationship. They're getting free product, you get content, and then you build on that. So the more that that relationship um, 
you know, solidifies, it could then evolve into more of a contractual influencer relationship mm -hmm. that can happen organically by brands actually finding these influencers and starting them off from product seeding and then moving them into contracts. Um, alternatively, there's also just a number of um, influencer marketing platforms. And Correct. platforms I've used in the past include four card, tap influence, um, open influence and reward style. And so these are lots of different, there's lots of different platforms for various interest and interest groups and in people who are interested in big influencers or who already are influencers can join these platforms. And that's where brands find a lot of their influencers, especially for very large programs where they're looking to work with, you know, 20, 30 influencers. It's very difficult for brands to go organically and find everybody. Um, and then these platforms not only help brands find these influencers, but then they help with the reporting and the monitoring and they manage right. all the contracts for brands. So a lot of the times brands just, go, especially in like the B2C space where it's direct to consumer, brands mm -hmm. will go to these marketing platforms and a lot of the heavy lifting is done by these platforms. So that's really great advice for anyone who wants to really work with brands is to, to really look into these platforms and how they can join them. So number two was find the avid fans. And number three is, what, do I, what am I looking for? <laughs> number three is kind of a no-brainer, but you'd be surprised. So <laughs> <laughs> um, in this day and age, I know a lot of people have that debate, is content over? Is content getting too much attention? From my perspective, I still think content is king. It's for a lot of brands. Maybe those brands that are more advanced are, are moving on to um, you know, AI and other types of activations. But for for really the crux of brands, it really comes down to content generation um, on their social media platforms, on their websites, and all of their digital touch points. And the type of content that they're interested in is quality content. When they start to identify influencers, they, I mean, they go like anybody else, you know, they're going to social media channels and they're looking to see the type of content these influencers post. So quality matters because we want to consume high produced stylized content. So it doesn't have to be over stylized, overly produced, it should feel authentic, but good imagery and good video content and dynamic content can go a long way. And so that would be my last advice for anyone who's looking to be an influencer or work with brands is put a little bit of that elbow grease into making sure your content is actually quality. Right, so we've got amazing quality content that's out there. Do the brands actually get involved in that, in designing that, that content, or is it up to the influencer to do whatever he or she wants when they're posting about that, that item? Yeah, I think it comes down to the campaign. But for the most part, like going back to the earlier points of trust and authenticity, brands are looking for turnkey content. So they want to reach out to influencers who already have a really strong point of view and a brand identity, um, like their personal brand identity that aligns with the brand. because. Brands don't want to over-stylize influencer mm -hmm. content and then it feel like branded content rather than influencer content. So I, I feel like it depends. Like you obviously want to stay on brands. So brands may share guidelines to say, this is kind of what we consider to be what, how we would um, approach consumers on, uh, on social media. Mm -hmm. And so those guidelines influencers can abide by, but the content really comes down to the influencer themselves. And how does, does a brand deal with a situation where maybe they seeded a product to a person, the influencer isn't loving absolutely everything about the product? Maybe there's a couple of negatives about that product. 
personally haven't come across too many examples of that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, just good. because if they're already posting about the product, they love it. Um, and so there's already that kind of relationship between brand and consumer at that point. But I would say, I mean, when it comes to product seeding and going back to your idea, like your earlier question about guidelines and how much of it does brand manage the kind of content that influencers create, there are times, I mean, when it comes to seeding, brands are looking to get that user-generated content, but they don't use everything. For examples, for example, um, I worked with brands where if an influencer has a child in the post, like a lot of brands may not feel comfortable um, posting a picture with the child uh, just based on their own personal guidelines. Mm -hmm. And so it, they, that content is out in the universe, which is great for a brand because it helps them build awareness. But then does that content get shared back onto a brand's channel? That's when the guidelines really come into impact okay. to make sure that it's brand appropriate and that brand appropriate content would then get posted on, let's say, a brand's Facebook channel or brand's gotcha. Instagram page. Yeah. Okay. So there's actually two sides to this. So there's the influencer side, which is me talking about the product and it's my personal experience with it. And then the, sometimes it's frustrating for me to say, well, why hasn't the official channel shared this post or retweeted this tweet? It's mm -hmm. all good publicity for them. But now you've just answered that question because maybe there was something in the background. Maybe there was another brand on the table. Maybe there was all these other little kind of logos that were in, snuck into the picture, which they're not comfortable or they're not allowed to share. And therefore, exactly. this is the content. Okay. Yeah. Makes, and I mean, there was, there's been times I worked on brands where – um, if an influencer is also then posting content of competitor brands, for example, then over time, brands will feel like, okay, that's, this, is an authentic, this is not an authentic influencer anymore because they're posting about us, they're posting about our competitors. And so that sense of brand uh, recognition is mm -hmm. kind of lost because it, it goes into the ether. So I think that's also another fact of it is like going back to that earlier point about brands want to partner with people who are avid fans. Uh, when com when they're posting competitor content, then it's kind of a no for a lot of brands. Okay, but that's that's a hard kind of uh, like red flag because obviously, as as people who are on the influencer side, we can't well, until we have some sort of a contractual relationships kind of with a brand, it almost makes it very difficult for us not to post uh, on competing brands. So if I post about Samsung and then and then. A week later, I'll post about Apple, and then a week later about Google. You know, it's it's all competing companies. But obviously, to cover my sphere and to serve my audience, I have to mention these other these other brands. So, do you guys look at maybe the content itself to see whether someone's like going gaga over another brand, and uh, because they just got a free product, or is it more of well, three strikes you're out? This is how the system determines it. I think it's on a case to case basis. So, the examples I've seen where people can talk about a lot of competitors and it makes sense is when you have like your own YouTube channel, you're doing product reviews and you're talking about lots of different brands and you're giving reviews of um, your opinion on how Samsung compares to, you know, another cell mm. phone company. Um, but I, I think where I've seen it go wrong is especially in like the retail space or fashion space where they're wearing a specific watch of one brand and then next, like two days later, they're wearing another watch of another brand. And so those are direct competitors. Um, gotcha. And so, so posting about the, like multiple different products that are in the same category like that 
kind of throws brands off a little bit. You get great content, but then the partnership may not turn into a contractual agreement at that point unless the influencer is willing to really only post about that brand. Okay, so that's a great, great, great insight right there. So it's more of, you got to be more conscious of the little things because brands are looking for those little things when they're determining who to take from product seeding, which is just getting the free product, to maybe, hey, let's do a formal campaign. Let's throw some actual money behind it. So I, me as the brand, I have managed to find a short list of the influencers that I want to work with and they look amazing. And now I'm ready to take it to the next level. Where do I begin? What do I have to do first to get the influencer on board with me? Yeah, I mean, it's, sometimes it's, I mean, it's just as organic as a direct message um, <laughs> on a social platform. A lot of the times through different tools that brands have, they'll just reach out through the tool. Um, if they see someone's posted, let's say, uh, about their brand product or service, um, they'll say, we love your content. Would Do you mind if we feature it on our channel? And I've seen that time and time again with a lot of the brands I work with. They're trying to ultimately show influencer content on their own channels. And so they'll just reach out organically to the influencer and say, you know, we'd love to work with you. Um, Are you open to receiving product from us and posting about it? And it's, I mean, it's as much as we want authenticity on kind of the output, the input can be a very authentic relationship too between brand and influencer of just reaching out and starting that conversation. And Nine times out of 10, I've always seen influencers be really excited because they really love that brand because they've already started posting about it, for example. Um, and so they'll they'll be really excited to receive product and um, want to build out their own channel and their own presence. So again, it becomes a very win-win situation. And I can tell you that that absolutely works. There's nothing more exciting than opening up an email from the company that you happen to have just reviewed their product or you've happened to just write about and now someone just reaches out, to, um, first of all, just to say thanks. Sometimes it's as simple as that. That just makes you all warm and fuzzy that somebody's listening. And then yes. they take it to that, to that next level. Say, hey, we have an event. We'd like to invite you to. Would you like to come and cover it or come and just be our guest? And then it just snowballs from there because you're building that rapport. So yep. just like, like we're looking for how do we make money by becoming influencers? How do we brand? How do we get those brand deals? Well, it just like the audience wants authentic, um, authenticity, so do the brands that you work with. They want you to be there for them as well. And I think it's very, very powerful to have that, that relationship. Yeah, so, I agree. I think it's, the, it's those, it's starting to become more about the long-term relationships. I mm-hmm. think where brands are starting to tiptoe away from is these short-term relationships. We pay you X dollars to do X number posts. Not to say that doesn't exist, it does, but it's about working with the same influencers for a longer period of time or to build that relationship with the influencer and really develop that trust between brand and influencer. So a lot of brands I've noticed are starting to really look at the long game rather than just these short-term wins for specific summer campaigns or spring campaigns. It's about really the having a repertoire of influencers that really believe in the brand and can be the megaphones for these brands. And I think from an influencer point of view, it makes complete sense. The problem that I always have with the kind of relationship with the brand and the PR agency, it's all about that report, that report mm-hmm. needs to be sent. Yes, some, so true. Sometimes things just take a while. Sometimes it's a you know, it's something that's an expensive product or hasn't launched yet. So the expectations are very, very different. And therefore, it's very difficult to show ROI in a couple of days, a couple of weeks. But when you have that long-term relationship, you can say, great, we started this campaign in January. It's three months later. Look at the stats. Look at these numbers. Look at that engagement. 
okay, people are clearly have turned around and been responsible. Just, are you able to kind of give us some idea? I mean, and I know you're going to say it depends. I can see it coming. <laughs> okay. um, like from a budget point of view, um, do you guys prefer from working with influencers? Do you prefer um, when an influencer says, okay, here's my rate card and you can basically an a la carte menu of this is what I charge for an Instagram post. This is what I charge for a blog post or a YouTube video. Or do you prefer to say, okay, we have X dollars. This is the kind of stuff we're looking for. Are you willing to do it for that amount? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. So a lot of <laughs> <Okay>. the times, <laughs> it depends on the campaign. So there's, I've been, I worked on campaigns that are really turnkey and it's, the objective of that campaign is to really get as much content as possible using a specific hashtag. For that, it's really helpful um, if influencers are willing to negotiate because it's mm -hmm. not necessarily a built-out campaign. So it's really great to know influencers' rate card for sure up front because it gives us some grounding um, and benchmark of what it will cost, what, the, what it'll cost for the brand. Um, so for just depends on the campaign. I've seen campaigns that have to be really nimble with smaller budgets. And so it's really great when influencers can share rate cards and then negotiate. Um, and then for larger, more established campaigns that may have more of an integrated media approach. For example, it has legs in earned media, has legs in paid media. Um, that's a much more established campaign. And that's where it's really important to know what the influencer's rate is for, you know, and a little bit more line items of how much they're willing to charge for X number of time and, and all of that's really important. And, but like I said, for the most part, most brands, especially for these larger, more established campaigns will go through these marketing plat influencer marketing platforms, such as your, you know, um, reward style or so forth. And so that's a lot of that contracts uh, is managed by the platform. So that's uh, for brands. It's, it's really easy because they don't need to get into the nitty gritty of every right. rate card and uh, contract. They just work through this middleman third party vendor to kind of do that for them. And so for the vendors, it's I think they actually require influencers to tell them their rate card up front. Yeah, it's kind of it's almost like a double-edged sword because if you know you're you're saying that um, oh me, if I'm talking to a brand and I, and we, we're talking about doing some sort of a campaign together, on the one hand, if I say to them I want you know this is what I charge for a video, this is what I charge for a blog post, this is what I charge for a social share, then on the one hand it's great for them because now they have a set of numbers and then they could reduce that from the budget and say is it worth it is it worth it or not? Great, fully understand that. Uh, what I do find that brands get a lot of value out of is that when they say, here's a total budget that we've allocated to you. What, what can you give us for this budget? And then a lot of the influencers so over deliver because they, you know, they just kind of find value in the total amount. So you're right. It does cut both ways where some campaigns, it's purely a numbers game. Do we know kind of like when you, when you kind of produce some sort of a budget for a campaign, and you want to work with an influencer, how do you determine what rate you're willing to pay? Is there some sort of a scale? Obviously, it depends. I understand. <laughs> um, you know, it does it depend on kind of various factors like their engagement rates or their audience size? How do you determine that? Yeah, I mean, the campaign budget is established up front. So if we want to do this campaign, how much how much money do we have to work with? And so a lot of brands kind of know that macro number up front. Mm -hmm. And then it comes into 
doing research on the various influencers that would make sense for that campaign and what they bring to the table. So if we're working with video influencers who develop really great video to content for YouTube, that may be a little bit more expensive. So how much budget do we want to carve out for YouTube influencers? And so it kind of starts macro and then makes its way micro. It's, a, it's very iterative. So it depends on like as influencers come to the table and share their rate cards, then brands can go back and kind of change budget depending on if they really, really want to work with that influencer or not. Um, but a lot of the parameters of the budget are set up front. And so it's, in that sense, it's helpful because they, right. they may have, they may know up front, like we can only, if we want to work with three mega influencers um, versus 10 nano influencers, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have to adjust the budget this way. And where do we want to allocate that? So a lot of the times um, I've seen us work with these marketing platform uh, vendors and they'll tell us, well, if you do five mega influencers, your budget will max out, or I can give you 15 nano influencers. Um, And so a lot of the times brands will say, well, I think I can get a lot more bang for my buck with maybe more reach and more targeted Mm -hmm. influencers if I go the nano route. And so as it kind of just becomes iterative of what the campaign objectives are, how much budget you have to work with and what you're going to get for that. How advisable is it to reach out to the brand directly or to their PR com- company and introduce yourself, maybe with a media pack? Is that something that's frowned upon or is that something that's acceptable? I think it's um, absolutely acceptable. I mean, it's yeah, everyone's got to you know advocate for themselves <laughs> and you yeah. never know what may came, come out of that. So um, I think brands are definitely open to that um, because they can talk, you know, have an informational conversation with that influencer when the right opportunity comes. Um, it's like anything else. When the right opportunity right. comes, then they can, art, the person's already on their radar and it shows a lot of initiative. And a lot of the times brands may not know what they want. And so it's really helpful for people to kind of raise their hand and say, I want to work with you. Okay. So great little tip right there, which I'm making a note. And of course, all these show notes will be available after this podcast. So if you missed anything, don't worry, it's all there for you. Uh, so as we follow, kind of follow that up with some advice now, we were looking to kind of pick your brains. What are some kind of absolutely must-dos? If, I'm, if so, it's me, I have a tech channel, for example. I want to work with a lot of brands who are in the tech industry. What are some tips that you can give me and other people that I must do when I want to make that connection? So um, it kind of goes to what I mentioned earlier, which is really have a strong point of view of who you are, um, what your social media presence is. Um, and that really helps brands establish whether it makes sense to partner or not. It's not something you want to find out down the road. So the more you can be very clear about your personal brand and your POV up front on your social channels, I think it makes it a lot easier for influencers to work with the right brands and vice versa. Um, nobody wants to waste their time or get into something right. that they don't feel comfortable with and don't feel like they're the right fit for. Um, I think the next thing is really looking into content diversification. So that's something that brands are really focused on. It's not just about static images anymore. Um, people are moving a long way into doing GIFs and dynamic content, even video Um, brands like video is a really hot topic within a lot of organizations right now. Um, And there's a lot of stats to back it up. For example, video is going to be growing to 82% of all internet traffic by 2022. And Mm -hmm. so it's really becoming an important way that people consume content. And so diversifying into 
creating more short form video content, even 15 seconds, 30 seconds, developing a YouTube presence. I think these are all the things that brands are starting to look for um, to really make sure that the content, when they tap into an influencer, they're get, you know, getting that bang for their buck. They're not just getting static content, but they're getting right. different types of content um, that they can leverage in various platforms. A lot of brands are thinking integrated. They're not just thinking Instagram, which I know is the, what, really the number one platform for a lot of influencer marketing, but they're thinking about how do we embed that content in paid media, um, in website content, in other marketing collateral, even email marketing. And so content that can have a lot of legs is money well spent for a brand rather than just thinking about, you know, square size images on Instagram. They're really thinking beyond that. Okay, brilliant. So the fact that like, if I have a tech blog, I got a YouTube channel, we have this podcast, we do a lot of stuff that's actually going to help me because I'm now can give you more bang for your back on this whole campaign as opposed to just one location. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. And then other kind of, if I want to reach out via email, should I have a media pack ready? What is a media pack and do you, what do you look for inside a media pack? I think it's, we've just become so evolved in influencer marketing at this point that a media pack is really essential and really important. A lot of what goes into that is, you know, your rate card, who you as a person, what are your interests? And then also just showing previous examples of the type of work that they've done with other brands. Um, all of that kind of builds out their portfolio mm -hmm. and is really important for brands to put a picture together of who this influencer is. I, I don't think it, it doesn't need to be anything too fancy. I think just enough of a snapshot for brands to understand um, what this particular influencer's POV is and how they could potentially partner with them. Okay, so it's still it's still critical. I mean, it's I like to kind of think of, as the media pack as my spokesperson. So I might yes. kind of email it to the first person on the email list. I might have a conversation with someone else, but then you never know because that person might not be the decision maker. They might be sending it internally to another department, even in another state or another country. So your media package actually speaks for you every step of the way versus just relying on that initial conversation with someone you had back in the day. So I love the idea of the media pack really being strong and advocating for you. Is there something we absolutely should not do? And it's going to scare the absolute living hell out of you and you're not going to want to deal with me. Is there any red flags that just says absolutely stay away from? <laughs> um, I guess the one that comes to mind, which I don't, I don't know if, if, if influencers do this or not, um, especially those that have, you know, really know that this is a space they want to get into. But I, a lot of brands don't want to be political. A lot of brands don't want to. Mm -hmm. They they want to separate the brand from everything else. And so a lot of influencers that may also lean into politics or have a really strong point of view um, in other areas, I think brands may just be like a red flag to say, if we, especially if they're contractual influencers, they right. don't want to kind of spend that kind of dollar amount and then have to maybe cut ties with that influencer if they don't agree on, you know, um, and it really brings negative coverage. So it really is about building the brand's reputation and, and really building that awareness. And right. so I think separating those two can, can go a long way. And in terms of kind of a person that's in their videos with constantly swears or cusses. Uh, is, oh, I mean, for sure. I, I guess so, that was just a given. <laughs> no, I'd never <laughs> say given. <laughs> I think, um, yes, bad language. I mean, right. just professionalism, the way you would approach any job. Um, right. Things that I would not be allowed to do in, in the corporate world, I think apply 
to influencers as well. It's just a different type of job, but it still right. requires that decorum and professionalism. And at the end of the day, you are spokes, a spokesperson for that brand. So it's really important to make sure you vet what that brand is about and make sure that brand's values align with your values. Otherwise, it's really, you're not going to be set up for a positive relationship. So absolutely. I think if you're know who you're dealing with. So do your research. You as if I'm reaching out to a brand, I want to make sure that they align. Absolutely. I want to know what kind of campaigns they've done in the past. Am I willing to do something that's similar? Because if I'm not, I should rather walk away before this even starts rather than trying to force something that doesn't really fit. My audience will see right through that. I'm going to lose credibility and it's just not going to be a sustainable relationship. So that really kind of makes it makes a lot of sense as well. When I'm thinking about engaging kind of with the brand and I would like to make that brand deal, is there anything that I can do to help myself really stand out from the crowd? Are there any tips that I'm not, I'm not the biggest in my industry? Is there anything I can do to, to say, despite all that, I'm really a good fit from you? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, first doing your research. So like going to any interview, if I went to an interview, I'd really thoroughly research who I'm interviewing with, what are their interests, what's their background, what's the company background. So I think it's the same for influencers, which is really understanding if you're going to pitch yourself, making sure that your pitch is tailored to who you're trying to pitch. So if there's a specific brand that you want to work with, really understanding the ins and outs, it can really impress um, the brand um, to say, okay, this person really gets us. And there seems to be a real authentic connection that we could go from here. Um, so I think that's step number one. Step number two is really um, making sure that you have the goods to back it up. So if you've got you know, the quality content, making sure you have that diverse content and a really strong portfolio to supplement not only your interests, but to like make sure that interest is established in actual prowess, I think is really, really important. Um, and the last is just showing enthusiasm. I think that, you know, enthusiasm can go a long way in making sure that your, um, that enthusiasm is genuine and that you really do want to partner with that brand that can really come across. So I would say those are kind of my three nuggets that influencers can really take and and approach brands with perfect love it so that's that's it's a good way for even the smaller channels and the smaller um, subscribers and smaller number of views to really kind of be genuine and say hey i'm actually a real real fan i really love what you're doing i might not be the biggest but i can bring you lots of value because of my audience and the people that trust me and that's why i'm going to stand out above above the crowd um, when you guys look at numbers, do you value kind of subscriber count more than perhaps maybe number of views per video or is there any kind of those metrics that mm -hmm. we should be looking out for? Yeah. So, I mean, we've all heard about fake followers and, and there's kind of a crackdown to make sure that brands are not working with people who just have a really high follower count, but can't really back that up with engagement numbers. So one piece of advice would really be like, when it comes down to those authentic relationships, if you've got 100,000 followers, but you're only getting 10 likes, that's a red flag to a brand to say this person's content isn't being engaged with by their community. And so to me, engagement and that engagement, it just depends on the platform. So it could be video views, it could be likes, comments, shares, but that's like an indicator for a brand to say, okay, this community really responds to this influencer. Um, and the second thing that brands are really becoming aware of and have now tools to back it up, it's not something that necessarily um, an influencer can kind of do on their end, but 
influencers, if they're going to be the megaphones for these brands, they want to make sure, and brands want to make sure that who is actually following this influencer. And so they can go even in depth to look at the, the types of followers that an influencer has to make sure that the end consumer that they want to reach are people that are following this influencer, especially with organic reach going down um, on social media, you want to make sure that if an influencer is posting something, it's going to the right people. Mm-hmm. So if it's like at least 50% or higher of an influencer's following should resonate with who the brand is trying to talk to ultimately. Because that's the customer. That's the people exactly. that are trying to reach. Exactly. The so it's not just, yeah, it's like looking beyond the veneer, which is like the influencer's pages are kind of like the display, but what's behind that display? Who is actually right. following and seeing that content is really, really, really critical. And I think influencer marketing has kind of become advanced now where brands are starting to look beyond the surface to see, okay, who is this content actually reaching? Perfect. So a subsc- a channel, like a YouTube channel that maybe has, uh, you know, 10,000, 15,000 subscribers, but it's got really good engagement on their videos, really kind of nice number of views, that is very, very valuable. So don't always look at until I get a million subscribers, nobody wants to talk to me. That is absolutely the wrong approach. It's your audience. What can yes. you bring to the brand? You're going to bring that audience because you have their attention and there's value there. And then you start building up your relationships. Because at the end of the day, that's what this whole thing is all about. Absolutely superb. I mean, this is going to revolutionize the way that influencers start looking at those brand relationships. It's not focusing on the wrong stuff, focusing on quality content that people actually want to consume. That is number one priority. It's always has been, and it always will be, because once you do that, then you build your audience, you build it authentically. Therefore, when you engage with the brands, the brands want to join that right. I feel like we should have like masked your voice. You know, like they do on the TV when you have an anonymous source. <laughs> Thanks, Liron. It's, it's been a pleasure. And for the rest of you listening on this podcast, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast application and share this video with one other influencer who's currently struggling getting those brand deals. Maybe they're missing some of these fundamental points. It really will make a big difference in their lives. Pay it forward because at the end of the day, we're one happy community. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tube Talk brought to you by vidIQ. Head over to vidIQ.com slash Tube Talk for today's show notes and previous episodes. Enjoy the rest of your video making day.